On this episode of Times Like Now, I'm continuing my conversation with Larry Crane of Jackpot Studios. Larry Crane has been a producer and an engineer in the Portland area for over 30 years, approximately. Produced bands such as Death Cab for Cutie and The Decemberists, and of course, Elliot Smith and Sleater Kinney as well. Pick up where we left off on this episode. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe. And continuing now with Larry Crane. In your experience, um, what is the most important gear to make a good record? Is it amplifiers or microphones? Or I mean, for the kind of music I end up generally doing, which is performance-based, you know, picked up with microphones, I, I feel like once you've got, I mean, certainly whatever generates the sound, the drum set, I have several drum sets here, and I'll swap out parts of people's drum kits if they bring their own to try to get better sounds. I have amplifiers and guitars and stomp boxes. All those things are very important. Like you don't, you don't worry about the microphone. If the thing you're recording doesn't sound good, you know what I mean? Like if someone brings in a guitar amp and it's like a PV guitar amp and it sounds like weird, you know, like crummy sounding or the speakers blown or something, you know, then you're like, well, hey, can you use this amp instead? You know, you have to you have to sculpt the sound at every single juncture uh, of the of what you're doing. So certainly, you know, sometimes just the instruments are the most, you know, they make the biggest difference, you know, beyond the players, of course, making the biggest difference. But I, I really can try to convince people when I'm coaching people about their home studios or their recording techniques, I if they're doing anything that needs to be mic'd up and with microphones, you know, if they're not just doing like virtual instruments and loops in a box, you know, like electronic music, which is super fun and valid. But if they're miking things up, buy microphones, buy lots of microphones, because you have to see the microphone as not as a thing that presents the truth, because it never does. It doesn't, there's no microphone that sounds like the way you hear it. Uh, it just records in a certain way based on its limitations and its voicing and the way it's constructed. So if you have a multitude of microphones that you've invested in, you start to learn like, oh, if I put this one on, then the person will sound this way when they sing. And if I put this one on, it'll be brighter or darker. And you get different uh, results. So I feel that having an extensive microphone collection would always be my first choice, you know. Right, right. So tell me a little bit about your your work with Portland musicians uh, going back into the 90s, of course, Elliot Smith, the Decemberists, uh, Quasi. You have a, a, a long resume of, of Portland musicians. Yeah. Um, how, how, is, how is that? How is that, those times and that place? Yeah. I was there. It was kind of special times and place. Yeah. Uh, but what, what do you recall? Because you, you made that happen. I mean, all of that really stems from me being in a band you know in the in the 80s and the early 90s and uh and playing music in that kind of scene all these bands would be considered you know indie music or college radio rock or whatever we used to call it in 1985 you know um so the kind of music i was playing was like that we were playing shows with the replacements and the dead kennedys and no means no and uh i'm sure i'm forgetting somebody really famous uh, cake you know bands like that in the a lot nirvana opened up for us you know that kind of thing so you know when i moved up here it was 1993 
and uh, the grunge thing had kind of happened a few years before, obviously. And but I'd already knew a lot of the bands here. So uh, Sam actually from Quasi had been in a band in the Bay Area uh, called Donner Party. And we used to play shows together and we both recorded our first albums at the same studio with Greg Freeman at the same time. Remember their reels on the shelf, you know, who's Donner Party, Greg? Oh, it's this this band. He's a funny songwriter. So when I moved to Portland, I was like, immediately, I well, I was, actually immediately I went and worked at a magazine here called Snipe Hunt and I was writing reviews and I was helping Kathy uh, Malloy out with that magazine, just as just a grunt worker and a little bit of writing. And one day she's like, oh, give Sam a call about this letter we got. And I called him and he goes, oh, I heard you were in town. And I went over and rehearsed with Sam and Janet uh, to maybe be in a band with them, which was called Motor Goat at the time. And then that didn't happen. They were like, oh, we're just going to do a duo. And that became quasi. And then I recorded like their third, wait, second, third, wait, third, fourth records. Uh, you know, because we were already friends and we already knew I'd actually played a show with them once on bass. Uh, but then, you know, through that meeting Elliot Smith, uh, the Spinanes, uh, you know, Rebecca was my neighbor, Rebecca Gates. Elliot was dating Joanna Balme, who's in Stephen Malkmus and the Jicks. Uh, and I knew Joanna from La Luna. She was working there, as were a lot of other friends. Um, so, you know, you just make all those connections and everybody was playing shows at EJ's and Satyricon, right. And La Luna and, and, uh, you know, I would be at those venues all the time. And my home studio before jackpot was just people like Elliot and Sean Krogan coming over and recording odds and ends. And, uh, uh, you know, say, uh, just all these things. I actually, the first recording I did in my home studio borrowed Quasi's recording equipment to record a band called the Maroons which uh, John Moen uh, is, was in, who's in Eyelids now and also in The Decemberist. So there's all these connections like that. And many of those connections were built up from the bands that used to open up for us when I would come play in Portland in the you know 80s and 90s. So it just kind of, it's all continuations. Right, right. It was a pretty, uh, a pretty magic time. A lot of great music. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of those Seattle bands that you speak of were... We're coming down I five and playing in Portland. They're you know coming through and on their on their way to San Francisco and oh, down, yeah. and stop in doing La Luna, like you said, and Satyricon, X Ray, yeah. and yeah, right. Oh, Unwound. Right. I saw so many good bands. Oh yeah, <laughs> as well. Um, upstairs at La Luna was a great venue as yeah. well. Um, so a little bit about. Uh, what do you think might be an ideal project? Something that you've always like a band you've wanted to record or like that you, you know, who, who or what kind of project would you like to see yourself doing? Some of you, a dream gig. I mean, I never, you know, I feel like I've been really lucky to, to work with some of the artists I have. And one of the most lucky things was doing an album for the go betweens from Australia uh, called the friends of Rachel worth. And they were a band I would have been a, I'd been a huge fan of. I'd seen them on their last tour before that. And uh, so doing something like that was like beyond, I would have never dreamed I could be the engineer for a record like that. Uh, And so, you know, and then working with Elliot Smith was just, you know, one of the most 
focused and brilliant songwriters I've ever worked with and able to play every instrument, just like, just drop an instrument tracks down and boom, you've got like Miss Misery or something sitting there. What the, you know, <laughs> how do you do that? You know, it's all sitting in his head, all this music, you know? Um, so I feel like in some ways these things happen to me. Like, like I said earlier, my life has just been a, a series of, of, events where something would be in front of me and I'd say, okay, I guess I could do that. And that's how I see recording and stuff. And I, I've never, you know, I've, it's rare. My wife always says, how come you don't solicit, you know, go to bands you like and say, Hey, I want to record you. And I'm like, Oh, they'll come around if they want to. I don't, you know, I'm very passive, I guess. I, because I know that, you know, people have other folks they want to work with at times and, you know, you're, it's funny. It's just a funny path. But I mean, if I was, if there was some crazy, if someone said you could do anything you want, I mean, I would be over the moon if I would, was ever able to record an album like a Pink Floyd album or a Velvet Underground record or, or a Brian Eno album or something like that. Um, there's, there's certain things like that that are just so musically and sonically iconic to me that that would just melt my brain a little bit <laughs> like yeah i can see something like a kind of like a like a pink floyd reunited album yeah or, i mean or, it won't um, happen but <laughs> right right of course no, not not that one um have you heard you mentioned prog rock earlier yeah. have you heard talk of uh of the two two guys from rush uh alex and getty uh, doing another project with the drummer from the Foo Fighters. No. I hear rumors. No, that's funny. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I can't. Yeah. Hawkins, yeah. I think Taylor, is his name. Taylor he, Hawkins. he, he. Yeah. yeah, he made a he made a, a kind of a comment and and kind of trying to get in their heads oh, about man. hey, you know, why don't why don't we do something? I'd I'd be into that. You know, wow. that would be pretty amazing. Yeah, I too. saw them. I saw Rush on so the last you, tour. It was so good, so fun. I did too. Oh, I've, man. I've, I've seen Russian a number of times, got to go backstage at the Coliseum and what? meet, uh, the two guys. Yeah. And when I was working for KGON, um, big BA took me backstage to meet, uh, Alex and wow. Getty got the, got the photograph, got the autograph and Neil didn't do those backstage. Yeah. things. <laughs> I always gathered that. <laughs> Yeah, I I saw an interview with him and he had said, you know, it's I appreciate the fans, but the idea of somebody wanting my autograph or wanting to be around me is just it just creeps me out. It just it just makes me uncomfortable. He was a so, smart man. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um something else, uh, you you mentioned Elliot Smith and and again, I mean, I'm a big fan and always have been. And, and it's, you, you said the magic that he would do is like a, what I call the three minute miracle, <laughs> these little songs, three minutes. And it's just, yeah. it's just a miracle. I mean, literally like, how did he do that? Where does this come from? It would have been amazing to, to be around, around that, that guy and see that coming out of him yeah. and, and recording that. Now you archive all of his stuff. Correct? Yeah. Um, along the way after, Unfortunately, after I was supposed to go do his uh, from a basement on the hill record, uh, I was supposed to go work on that with him, and then he passed away like ten days before I was going to fly down there. Um, so that didn't happen, and uh, my friends Rob Schnapp and Joanna Bome finished that record 
the tracks for that record they mixed them and stuff um and then when the album new moon uh was being tossed around as an idea um a few years later uh, his father elliot's father came to me and said would you want to do this project and i said certainly and and then i said well really there should be an archivist someone should digitize all these tapes and sort everything out and so he said do you want to do it <laughs> i was like what uh I guess so, you know. Uh there was a point where I spent like a, most of a year uh off and on like digging into the, you know, managing all this stuff, getting things in proper storage, getting them to a place for tape transfers, uh and then dealing with like, you know, taking photos of everything and scanning things and trying trying to figure it all out, like what what was from where and when. He didn't ever hardly write anything on his tapes and stuff. So there's, there's sometimes no information. But, uh, you know, I, I still work for them doing that work occasionally. I work for things that Kill Rockstars puts out, uh, like the recent, uh, the second album, the self-titled album came out recently with a remastered version that I did all the prep work and sourcing and overseeing. And I went to the mastering sessions and made choices and, then there's a live disc that came out with that, which I, I made the CD, I made the cassette transfers for that. And then I mi- kind of mixed and prepped and did all the work to get that ready and make it sonically sound better, uh, which was extensive. Um, you know, just even going down to what kind of tape deck to play the tapes from, you know, start trying to do different passes and see if I can get better quality. So I do a lot of that work and I help advise on, you know, what's in the vaults and stuff like that. So about the vault, uh, who owns that stuff? You mentioned his father. Did this? Did these tapes and this music, unreleased music, become f- property of the family? Uh, so Elliot Smith was signed to a major label um, in 1998, uh, and so everything from then on is technically owned by the major label, by Universal Music, um, except for from a basement on on a hill, which is his his posthumous record that he had already got permission to put out on an independent label as sort of a little uh, experiment or something. So that record, his family owns the music on that record, but not the outtakes. And then his family owns all of his music up until 1998. So that includes the rec- all the stuff that we know of just on kill rock stars, basically solo records is, is there more stuff in the vaults? Would there ever be more material coming there out? There could be. Um, you know that I, I'm never at liberty to say anything uh, until it's until it's sure. announced by a record label. But uh, there's with any artist of, of any sort, there's always more stuff. You know, alternate versions of songs, live recordings. There's always more stuff than gets released because there's just that's just the nature of it. So. You know, to, to easily answer that, yes, there's stuff in the vaults. Uh, and there's songs that, that the most of even as hardcore fans, have, there's songs that they've never heard, you know, that are in there. I'm not saying they're amazing songs, but they're unique and they're different. And so there's some things like that that hopefully someday we'll get some sort of release. It's it's all done very slowly and carefully. Uh, his family is very conscientious of, of not wanting to look like they're just trying to make a cash grab on anything or just, or just depleting the vaults and putting everything out there with like with no 
plan. So there always has to be sort of a thematic, you know, thing to the release and, and a reason to do something. Um, and even though they're so careful and they do all that, I'll read things that people say, like, you know, this record's, you know, this shouldn't have come out this, they're just trying to make money. It's like, it's not a, it's not a huge, you know, come on, you know, it's not a journey album or something. It's like, you know, what do you, how much money do you think is really being made off of a deluxe reissue of an album? You know? I mean, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. There's always trolls. The things I read. Um, yeah, I bet. Um, well, I would certainly like to see some of that more material. I was a big fan of heat miser and, uh, and the live shows for uh, speaking of La Luna and Satyricon, X Ray Cafe and whatnot, yeah. the those Heat Miser and and those other bands you mentioned, they you know, yeah. that that scene that that Portland scene at that time was was every night of the week you see three bands at La Luna for eight dollars. Yeah. It was three dollars, yeah, pretty amazing. Three dollars sometimes, man, crazy. Like, well, yeah, yeah. I guess the price went yeah. up to <laughs> six or seven or eight. You know, yeah. Yeah, on a Tuesday it was yeah, right. On the weekend it might be eight. There were some crazy shows, you know. I'd see Pond or bands like that. It was so good. Yeah, sweaty nipples and yeah, yeah. Uh, gosh, some of the uh, regulars uh, on the scene at the time. Yeah. So something, uh, what, what, what's, what's something that you've gotten out of Tape Op Magazine? That the magazine is so established, been around for so long. What's something that you've learned? from that experience from writing the magazine and from from doing this for so long it was you know such a, a dedicated project some valuable philosophy or or something for for recording people i mean i, th- I kind of started it so i could talk to people and try to learn more about you know making records and recording and i thought i think early on i thought it was a little bit more like oh what do you, what do you use what works you know about recording equipment and stuff and now sometimes I'll do an interview with someone and I'll realize we didn't discuss anything specific, like a piece of gear or a microphone or anything, but we're, we're definitely discussing like ways of utilizing such equipment. And I think the, the thing that I really, really learned along the way is that, and like I kind of said earlier, I think, um, is that the person making the decisions is the one that's really valuable and, and having sort of, when you're producing a record to have sort of a vision of what, where this could be, where it could end up, what it, what, what it could be as an, as a, an album or a song or whatever you're doing, but, but also being really open to what could happen along the way that would be different than you expect and letting some of those really good things happen. I think that's, that's what I've learned, you know, from talking to people like Brian Eno and David Byrne and T-Bone Burnett and, uh, Glenn Johns and you know all these major major people over the years I mean the thing I learned more than anything was that you you don't you can't approach the recording process as a guarantee like it's going to have to be this way you you have to be really open to accidents and and chance but also like have your hand on the wheel and really guide it uh, towards the finish line make choices that that will commit to things and get things done and I think that's the stuff I really learned that I've been, you know, in studios like Abbey Road and 
uh, all over the world, Rancho de la Luna out in the desert, places all over the world to see studios and meet people, you know, in the middle of Provence, you know, (laughs) wherever. And, uh, you know, at this point in my life, it's people will be like, oh, look at that console, look at that tape deck. And it's like, none of that impresses me. I'm absolutely uh, sitting around having a long conversation about recording equipment. It's just, it doesn't lead anywhere to me anymore. I'm not, I'm absolutely disinterested. If someone has a little thing, like if a peer of mine drops me a line and says, I just got this mic, it's great. That's good information to know. That's fine. But a, and a one hour conversation about that mic is is the worst thing I could ever imagine being involved in. Because I, I think at the end of the day, what I, all I care about is the art. I want the music and the art of the music to be something that's lasting, eternal, you know, timeless and emotional and connecting with people. And, and maybe, you know, if the best record you work on could be something that means something to someone, you know, like they're, when they're down, they listen to it and they felt better or vice versa. And, you know, it takes them somewhere and it gives them somewhere to be for a moment. That's beautiful and amazing. And that, that's the thing that really matters in the end. And if, if you're, as a musician, an artist, a recording engineer, a producer, if all you're doing is sitting there going, this recording console is so great, it's going to make everything perfect, then you're you're making a mistake because you're thinking that something's making up for something else that's maybe not there that, you know, you need emotion in there. You need art. You need a voice. You need something happening that is exciting and unique and special that connects with people. I interviewed um, Lonnie Joe from the uh, Clinton Street Theater mm-hmm. recently, and uh, we talked about that, that it's just a room. <laughs> it's just a room. It's just a recording deck. It's the, it's the people that really make the yeah. magic. It's the, it's the people, the commitment to what it is, the art that you said, and the heart that comes along with it that really makes it stand out and makes, makes it something special for people. I, yeah, absolutely. I get emails every day from somebody saying uh write about this this person bought this thing this recording equipment pile put it in a room write about it and i'm like it hasn't even been it's like the the studio has not made any art yet there's nothing to there's no story to tell i will not write about that yeah uh you know and i don't if you look at tape op magazine we don't write about like studios really we don't it's very rare we've said like here's a thing about a studio we write about people and i think that's an important distinction it's like it's not an industry magazine i'm not i'm not doing this to say you know okay who installed an api console in a studio this month i I couldn't care less you know i want to hear how are these great records made and and what what's somebody's story what's where did they come from how'd they end up in this amazing position to record outcast or somebody you know like how did how did this person end up there what what was the path you know and that's that's far more exciting we and the new issue uh coming up in may it's got linda perry in it and it's just amazing to talk to linda perry about producing these dolly parton and pink and christine aguilera you know and her four non-blondes experiences and stuff like that those are real stories about you know interfacing with people being creative and and the 
you know, sometimes having problems, you know, things that, that make it hard to make a record. Those are real stories. And, and none of that would be, you know, she talks a little bit about my, some of the microphones and things she likes because she knows them and she can get the job done quick. And you're like, great, that's not a great story. You know, like if you have this mic, you can use it on all sorts of things. And she's going on and I'm like, that's really good to hear. You know, that's information that, that someone can take away and use. But it's it still comes down to the working with people and making records. And a room full of recording equipment is just a room full of recording equipment. It's <laughs> just sitting there. I I talked with a, a claymation uh, animator from Will Vinton Studios many many years yeah. ago, uh, when when uh, animation programs were were all the rage and and newer uh, animation programs coming out and. This animator, I can't remember his name, but he had said, you can know this animation program inside and out, upside and down. You can know every trick about this animation program, but that still doesn't mean that you can animate this coffee cup and and give it life and, and give it a story. You know, it, there's it's it's more than that. It's it's not the tech. It's the storytelling and yeah, and the, the passion that the, the the artist brings. It's just buttons and and technology. I mean, a great yeah. example in in my world of that is is the software known as Pro Tools. Like Pro Tools is spoken right. about all the time when you talk about recording music now. Mm-hmm. And I know how to use Pro Tools. And I you know how I learned it? I learned it making a Slater Kinney record because John Goodmanson, the producer showed up and said, we're doing this in Pro Tools. Here's how you do. I learned along every step along the way of learning Pro Tools was just enough to get the job done. And then, so, you know, a few years go by and I'm kind of getting a little better at it. And people would come in the studio and go, wow, I bet you know everything about Pro Tools. And I'm like, I just know enough to get the job done. That's all I care about, you know? And every once in a while I have to learn something new to, to work more efficiently or effectively. And I'll sit down and I'll spend a moment, but 99% of what I know about this software, I learned while I was under the gun and getting paid for it. So that's, to me, it's like, it's not about being an expert. It's about on these, on a piece of software or anything. It's about knowing what to do when to make everything work, you know, to get the record done. I went into a studio once and, and there was an assistant there and the first thing the assistant said was, was like, I'm Pro Tools certified. (laughs) I mean, it was terrible. I was like, what? Why would you tell me this? And then, and then the computer crashed or something went totally wrong. It wouldn't work. And I just looked at the assistant and said, you're certified. You fix it. I walked out (laughs) of the room, you know, and it's just, you know, I mean, you can go to school. I never went to school for for recording music you can go to school and learn some things like my studio manager she did and that really helped give her a leg up because she hadn't done the same kind of experience like i had like going to studios as an artist and such so sure that can help but it's like it doesn't prepare you for being a producer or really you know stopping someone from crying or something the things that have happened or, you know, dealing with an incredibly drunk person who's supposed to be singing or the crazy stuff that happens sometimes. No school is going to teach you that. See, it is a lot like making movies. It, it kind of is. 
Thank you so much, Larry. I think we'll wrap it up at right. that. Thank and uh, really do appreciate your time. Larry Crane, Jackpot Studios. Been a great honor to talk with you. And uh, Thank thanks you. again. Thank you. You can hear past episodes of Times Like Now wherever you get your podcasts. Please do subscribe. Thank you to the letter J, Cody Robertson, for original music. I'm Trevor. I can be reached, Trevor, at timeslikenow.com. I'll talk with you again next time. Thank you.